Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Clifford Robert Olson. I have no idea why his full three names were always used by the media. It was certainly more recognition than he deserved. He also would later become known as the Beast of British Columbia. The lower mainland in British Columbia, BC as it's known, is on the west coast of Canada. Is interwoven with numerous municipalities, including Vancouver, Coquitlam, New Westminster, Agassiz to name a few. Clifford was a New Year's baby born January 1st, 1940, and named after his father. He had a younger sister and two younger brothers. They grew up in a house near the Pacific National Exhibition in Vancouver. The Peony, as it was known, is an annual fair featuring agriculture exhibits as well as amusement park rides. The Peony was a rite of passage every August for any child growing up in the Lower Mainland. In fact, we used to save up our Kool-Aid packages and turn them in for free admission. By the age of 10, Clifford was missing school and within a couple of years dropped out completely. He ended up with only a grade 8 education and quickly turned to a life of crime and was imprisoned by the time he was 17. In 1965, the Vancouver Sun reported on Clifford's escape from jail. He was serving three and a half years in the BC Penitentiary for breaking and entering. He pretended to be ill and three guards escorted him to the hospital. He managed to escape. He reportedly spent the night under a bridge in New Westminster, then made his way to a wooded area along the Canada-US border. After a week on the run, he was outsmarted, or should I say outsniffed, by a police dog and was caught and sent back to prison. Clifford would escape prison six more times over the years In 24 years, he would be convicted 90 times for offenses, including rape, theft, forgery, fraud, possession of a firearm, parole violation, and escape from lawful custody. In 1974, while in prison, he was accused of repeated sexual attacks on a 17-year-old inmate. Then in 1978, while out of prison, he assaulted a 7-year-old girl. In January 1980, Clifford was relieved from prison and met Joan Hale, who became his girlfriend. During two weeks in May 1980, over 80,000 people visited the BC Penitentiary in New Westminster. After housing prisoners for 102 years, it was closing, and one of those prisoners had been Clifford Robert Olson. Strangely enough, he felt the need to join the public in visiting the BC Pen before it was closed and torn down, but his nostalgic decision would cost him his freedom. There was a Canada-wide warrant out for his arrest, and when he poked his head into his old cell, A former guard recognized him, and he was arrested. The early 1980s in the Lower Mainland was a time when families left their doors unlocked and parents let their children play in the parks or go to the malls by themselves. Clifford changed all that. In the summer of 1981, parents knew someone was grabbing their innocent kids off the street, and suddenly, no one felt safe. Doors were locked, curtains stayed closed, and children didn't go out alone. In the fall of 1980, Autumn was settling in, and the leaves on the trees were turning a bright red. Just as Clifford started his nine-month killing spree, preying on the innocent, preying on our children. On November 19, 1980, 
Christine Weller disappeared while riding a board bike near the motel in Surrey, where she was living with her parents. Her body was found five weeks later in Richmond by a man walking his dog on Christmas Day. She died of multiple stab wounds. Christine was 12 years old. Five months later, in April of 1981, Clifford would have a son with his girlfriend. His exact birth date has never been released. Their son was named Clifford Olson III. In the same month that Clifford's son was born, Colleen Daniel disappeared. The Vancouver Sun reported that on April 16, 1981, after leaving a friend's house in Delta, she had planned to take the bus to her grandmother's house in Surrey, but she never arrived. Five months later, on September 17, her skeletal remains were found in a heavily treated area in South Surrey. She died from skull fractures. Colleen was 13. Five days later, on April 21st, Darren Johnsrud disappeared from a local mall in Coquitlam. He was living with his dad in Saskatchewan, had just arrived two days earlier to visit with his mother. He went shopping at the local mall and disappeared. The Globe and Mail reported that in the days and weeks following Darren's disappearance, his parents started hearing about other missing children. On May 2nd, 11 days after Darren disappeared, the police called to say they had found the body of a boy and asked for Darren's dental records. Six days later, police called again, this time to ask for details of Darren's clothing and the name of his dentist. Then two days later, the police called to say that the body was definitely not their son. The next morning, they called back to say they'd made a mistake. The body was Darren. He had been found in mission, bludgeoned. His cause of death was skull fractures. Darren had just turned 16. On May 15th, a week after Darren's parents received the devastating news that their son had been murdered, Clifford married his girlfriend, Joan Hale. Four days later, he would murder again. On May 19th, Sandra Wolfsteiner disappeared from Langley. Witnesses had seen her hitchhiking on the Fraser Highway and saw her getting into a two-door gray car. Her body was later found in the Chilliwack area. She died from skull fractures. Sandra was 16. On June 21st, almost a month since Sandra disappeared, Ada Court disappeared while walking to catch a bus to Coquitlam. She had just finished babysitting her nieces at her brother's apartment, and she never arrived home. Two months later, her skull and jawbone were found near the Weaver Lake near Agassiz. Dental records confirmed it was Ada. Later, it was revealed that she died of strangulation. Ada was 13. Eleven days later, on July 2nd, Simon Partington disappeared while riding his bike to a friend's house. His mother didn't know he was even missing until he didn't come home for dinner. Then she phoned his friend's house and discovered he'd never arrived. The next day, his bike was found behind a fence at a nearby shopping center. Simon's father posted a $1,000 reward for information leading to Simon. Almost two months later, on August 27th, police found his body in a cranberry bog in Richmond not far from Christine Weller's body. He had been strangled to death. Simon was only nine, the youngest victim. Seven days later, on July 9th, Judy Cosma disappeared from a bus stop in New Westminster. She was on her way to visit a friend in Richmond. Her body was found three weeks later in Bush near Weaver Lake. She had been stabbed 19 times. When Judy disappeared, she was carrying an address book and after her murder, several friends listed in her address book got calls from someone who breathed into the phone. One friend was told that her friends and her would be next. Judy was 14. The day after Clifford killed Judy, he took his wife and son on a vacation to the United States. The killings in the Lower Mainland stopped. 
for the 11 days he was gone. Then on July 23rd, just two days after Clifford returned from his vacation, Raymond King Jr. disappeared. He'd rode his bike to the Canada Manpower Youth Employment Office in New Westminster, where he'd gone to look for work. He locked up his bicycle and was never seen again. His body was found in a remote area near Weaver Lake, less than a mile from where Judy Cosmo's body had been found. He had been bludgeoned to death and died from skull fractures. Raymond was 15. On July 25th, two days later, Sigrun Arn disappeared while visiting Canada from Germany. She'd arrived with the tour group, and when she didn't show up at her aunt's house after the tour, her aunt reported her missing. She was later found murdered, her body in a cranberry bog not far from where Simon parted and his body had been found. She had died from skull fractures. Sigrun was 18. Two days later, Terry Lynn Carson disappeared after she left her home in Surrey. It was later reported that she was seen drinking beer in a hotel and police regarded her as a runaway. Terry's mother distributed missing posters to Terry, including at the mall in Surrey where she had planned to apply for a job. On August 19th, police told her mother they believed she had been abducted. Eight days later, Terry's body was found in Agassiz. She died of strangulation. Terry was 15. Police had just listed Clifford as a suspect. Province newspaper reported that Detective Dennis Tarr from the Delta Police Department had a few conversations with Clifford, and during one of them he became suspicious when Clifford referred to a newspaper story on Simon Partington. Police in various cities were investigating the disappearance. They were looking at traffic tickets issued on the days the children had disappeared. They were checking license plates around the area of Raymond's funeral. They were looking for sex offenders and child molesters, and it wasn't long before Clifford's name came up in their police search on their criminal database. Police now had him under surveillance, but it was sporadic. And on July 29th, the province newspaper reported that there might, in fact, be a link between some of the cases, and police from various municipalities were planning to meet. On July 30th, three days after Terry disappeared, Louise Chartrand disappeared after she left her sister's home in Maple Ridge to meet friends for coffee. Afterwards, she hitchhiked Parkway and stopped to buy cigarettes and decided to walk to work. She never arrived for her shift as a waitress. Two weeks later, some of her clothing was found torn and stained near Whistler, a ski resort near Vancouver. Her body was found shortly after on August 26, three miles away. She had been partially buried in a gravel pit. She had died from skull fractures. Louise was 17. Six children had been murdered within the last 30 days. The province newspaper reported that police had now put together a skilled police surveillance team known as Special O, the Special Observation. Their skills included surveillance techniques that had been tested and refined by American and British major intelligence and law enforcement operations. The crew of 10 Special O members used their sophisticated equipment and multiple disguise vehicles to follow Clifford. He was now under 24-hour surveillance. In mid-August, Clifford was still under surveillance when he traveled by ferry to Victoria on Vancouver Island. Special O undercover police watched him commit a break and enter, but they didn't arrest him. They wanted him for a bigger crime, for murder. On August 12th, he was traveling near Nanaimo in a rented van and picked up two young girls hitchhiking. Police were following him when they headed east towards a small town of Euculet. Police couldn't risk two more murders. They swooped in and charged him with impaired driving and dangerous driving. Then police got a big break when they found Judy Cosmo's address book in his possession. 
As noted in the Vancouver Police Museum archives, Olson later remarked, Of course I intended to kill him. I had no idea I was being followed. If I hadn't been stopped, those girls would now be dead. Out of the 11 missing children, police had found four of their bodies, but there was little evidence linking Clifford to their murders. Police interrogated him for days. Then Clifford asked for a cash for body swap. He would take them to the remaining seven bodies in exchange for $10,000 per body, and another $30,000 for information on the four bodies the police had already found. And he would also give police the mementos he had stolen from each child he murdered. The stipulation was that the money be paid to his wife, Joan, immediately after Clifford took police to a body. This was unprecedented. No one wanted to make this deal with a child serial killer. The police didn't have enough evidence to convict him and leading them to the bodies. He was confessing to the murders. Police felt they had no choice but to do the cash for body swap. On October 3, 2011, the Vancouver Sun reported that Clifford traveled in a car with four detectives followed by a dog car. Behind, there were usually three or four vehicles carrying forensic specialists to handle the crime scenes. One body was mummified by the time it was found. Others were so badly decomposed, only pathologists could identify them. Clifford pantomimed a reenactment of each murder as he led police to their bodies. He showed no remorse. As each body was found, the police paid $10,000 to Joan. Clifford's lawyer then immediately deposited it to a local bank, then transferred it offshore so police could not seize it. The police, the justice system, and the politicians managed to keep the cash for body swap out of the media, for a while at least, until eventually word leaked out and the media condemned the decision. The parents and families of the victims were outraged. Some would file a lawsuit for the money to be returned, but his wife Joan, she refused. And legally, the courts had no choice but to rule in her favor. There are many unsolved murders in B.C., I will never know if Clifford Olson was responsible for any others. Police investigated many, but could not link him. In the early 1980s, when children began disappearing, the police classed a lot of them as runaways. And standard procedure was they didn't start searching until they'd been missing for 48 hours. Families often found out the details of the child's murder through the media. Thankfully, that has changed. In the U.S., the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was founded in 1984, and in Canada, the Missing Children's Network, also in 1984, the Missing Children's Society in 1986, and Amber Alert in 1996. Families are now provided with details before it is released to the media. They are provided with reserve seating at the trial. They can make victim impact statements at the trial, sentencing, and at parole hearings. Families are provided the tools to process their loss and know their child's life mattered. It was later revealed that Clifford would pose as a construction contractor to lure the children, offering to pay them double the going rate. He then offered them alcohol and pills to subdue them. He had a vast smorgasbord in which to choose his victims. He would cruise in a car looking for them at the local malls, bus stops, and ambling down the street. Streets close to their homes where they felt safe. He crossed municipal boundaries and knew the back roads. He used his dark, wavy hair, brown eyes, quick smile, and easygoing conversation to charm them before he raped them and brutally murdered them. In hindsight, you wonder how the police did not link all the missing and murdered children. 
But in the 1980s, BC's Lower Mainland was a mixture of numerous cities and municipalities, each with their own police force. All those years Clifford spent in prison had sharpened his criminal skills, and knowing this, he often crossed between municipalities, abducting his victims from one city and dumping their bodies in another. He was also an unusual killer in that his victims were both boys and girls, and their ages ranged from the youngest at 9 years old to the oldest at 18. And he varied his methods of murder such as strangulation, stabbing, or using a rock. On July 14, 1982, Clifford entered a courtroom in BC and pled guilty to murdering 11 children. As the Vancouver Sun newspaper reported, when he pled guilty to three of the charges, he took a white handkerchief from his suit jacket pocket and wiped his eyes. Being that numerous psychological assessments had determined he was a narcissistic psychopath, his tears were an act. He was adept imitating emotions, but not capable of having any. He was sentenced to 11 concurrent life sentences and was not eligible for parole for 25 years. Clifford started killing when he was 40, which is considered late by psychologists. However, the fact that he only spent four years of his adult life outside of prison is likely the reason. He very well may have killed earlier. Clifford continued to torture the parents whose children he killed. He wrote them letters from prison and sent them drawings, telling them explicit details of their child's murder. While in prison, he made chilling videos detailing the murders. It's been unfathomable the pain the parents have endured over the years due to Clifford Robert Olson. He showed them no remorse and repeatedly ripped open their wounds. He did not want them to heal. He was in prison, but still wanted attention. He wanted the world to know how clever he was. Some parents fought back with lawsuits, others by giving to charity groups to help others affected by violence and murder. Although Clifford's parents stood by him throughout their lives, when his father died in 1988 and his mother a year later, his siblings ceased all contact with him. Peter Worthington from the Toronto Sun is quoted as saying, Despite an order banning him from any contacts with the media, he managed to clear the way for me to visit him every couple weeks during the better part of a year in the early 90s while he was in Ontario's Kingston Penitentiary. I also received almost daily phone calls from him. We are conditioned by novels, TV, and movies to expect serial killers to be scary and sinister, not Olson. He comes across as almost benign, ingratiating, friendly, and utterly unthreatening, which makes him all the more frightening. Olson's young victims had no chance when he turned on the smarm. As for remorse for his crimes, no way. Olson claims regret, but only as a ploy. Fifteen years later, in August 1997, Clifford applied for parole under the Faint Hope Clause. The government had recently amended the section of the criminal code. However, Clifford had applied before it had been amended. He would ride on a private jet from Montreal, Quebec to Vancouver, B.C. to ask a jury to grant him early parole. It took the jury less than 15 minutes to reach a decision. Clifford was denied. Nine years later, Clifford tried for parole a second time in July 2006. Again, the board denied him. In March 2010, it was discovered that Clifford was receiving over $1,000 a month in old age and pension benefits from the Canadian government. In response to the public and media uproar that followed, the government acted swiftly and within three months cancelled prison payments to convicts while in prison. Four years later, Clifford tried for parole a third time in November 2010. 
He was denied again. He said he wouldn't try again. A photo posted by CBC News shows Raymond King Sr. wearing a pin with his son Raymond's photo and a ribbon bearing the names of his victims, Christine, Colleen, Darren, Sandra, Ada, Simon, Judy, Raymond, Sigrin, Terry Lynn, and Louise. Remember those names. On September 30, 2011, Clifford Olson died in prison from cancer. The Beast of British Columbia was finally dead at 71. This story has personal meaning for me. In 1981, I was young and had just finished school for the summer. I was excited to be heading to the Lower Mainland to visit my relatives, but it wasn't going to be my usual summer vacation to beaches and homemade popsicles. My young cousin with his adorable mop of blonde hair wanted to go to the corner store to buy some candy, but my aunt steadfastly refused, stating it wasn't safe because there was a monster out there grabbing kids off the street. We weren't allowed to leave the yard. We couldn't go to the park alone. We were young and had no idea of the evil that roamed so close, just down the street, lurking, ready to kill, and take our innocence. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Adriana Vasco and how the lives of four people merged on a dark, lonely highway in California. A young mistress, an innocent wife, a hitman, and the husband who hired him. But it didn't go according to plan. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effect and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.